Hello everyone. Thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos, so if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, Revelation chapter 15 through 22. So this is kind of the, the end of a, of a four-year cycle that we started clear back in 2020. And it's, it's kind of amazing to get to this last chapter or this last set of chapters in the New Testament as we, as we close off not just the book of Revelation and not just the, the New Testament cycle of Come Follow Me, but really the, the ending of this four-year cycle. And we're so grateful for uh, this opportunity that we've had to spend this time together with you as we've studied these four incredible books of Scripture through the Come Follow Me program. So thank you for your willingness to, to jump in and study the Scriptures and try to connect with heaven as we walk this path together. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating thing for, for Taylor and me in this setting where we're, we're in a studio talking to a camera and we can't see people, but behind that camera we know there are real people, real sons and daughters of God with real struggles and real concerns and real trials and tribulations, as well as real successes and real gifts and real help from the Spirit. And it's, it's amazing to be in this journey together with you. So thank you. And we hope that as you have been engaging in the scripture and gospel study over the months and years, that you have felt more of God's love both expressed in these ancient documents as well as in your own life, and that you have felt a greater desire to be aligned to God and to receive his love in your life. The world is full of enormous amounts of God's love and light and goodness, and we hope that this experience has helped you to feel, see, grasp, and share even more of that. So as we jump into this this last lesson in the book of, of Revelation, we would invite you to keep a prayer in your heart that the struggles, the, the messiness of mortality that you're facing, whatever that looks like, that the Lord will help you feel more peace, that he'll help you feel more inspiration and more guidance and direction on how to move forward, putting more trust in him than ever before in your life. Because at the end of the day, all four of these scriptures that we've been through, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Old Testament, New Testament, if you peel back all the layers, there's one constant beneath all of everything that we've talked about, and it is the reality of God's existence, His love, His perfected attributes, and the supernal role of His Son, Jesus Christ, in being your Savior and your Redeemer. And we see that again. Every, every lesson we've ever taught or covered at the core has been the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace and his mercy and his power and his love. And as we jump in today into chapter 15 of Revelation, we see another one of those attributes that we've talked about before, but it often gets skipped over because we live in a world that wants to sanitize 
our, our view of God. We want to fit God into a little box that we've prepared for him. We want him to be all-powerful, all-loving, all-merciful, but don't, don't have any justice, don't have any judgment, and yet it's part of his character, and we're going to talk about that, why this is such a significant attribute of God. As we jump into chapter 15, verse 1, it says, and I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. The, the word wrath often creates this feeling of, oh no, we should be scared of God. We, sh we should uh, do everything we can to avoid him because he's this wrathful being. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to decide whether God is a God of wrath or a God of love because he's both. He, he, he's not bifurcated between these two things. They're perfectly a part of him. Now, stop and think about that. Where would you want to see the wrath of God unleashed? What are some situations? There are times when you're overcoming hell, when you're overcoming sin, when you're overcoming the devil, that you don't want a quiet, peaceful God standing there on the front line in the battle against darkness, against the forces of hell. You want a God who is almighty, who is powerful, and with that uh, capacity goes forth to destroy that which was aimed at destroying you. So, the wrath of God is an amazing attribute of God that is absolutely essential in his character, and that's what we see here coming out in chapter 15, is after the seven seals have been opened, we're start, we've opened the seventh seal, then we had the seven trumpets, now we're going to get ready for the seven vials to be poured out in chapter uh, 16, you see that God has been working with people again and again and again, pleading with them to obey him, to trust him, to come unto him, to keep his commandments, and they keep rejecting him and turning to the devil. And so now it's time for the wrath to be poured out. We've talked about this in prior lessons, and it's useful to, useful to remind ourselves that what is happening here in the book of Revelation could be mapped against the creation story. In creation, God discovers all this chaos, all this chaos exists, this commingling where things are not in their place. They don't have boundaries. And so he provides order by separating opposites. And in the Old Testament, in other passages outside of Genesis, the creation story is often represented as a battle where God imposes order on the creation and once the six days of the creative period have been concluded, when the battle has been won, won, when there is order, there is now peace, God sits on his throne and everything in the created order that's welcomed into his presence is there in his temple. He's on the throne. We'll see the same thing here. So when you hear about the wrath of God, Tyler's right. If you want to worship a God who's overcoming the powers of chaos, the warrior divine hero God is the one you want in that moment who has the power to separate the chaos and put it in its place so that peace 
can reign. So we would expect that. And maybe this is not a great metaphor, but if you ever watched a great superhero movie, these characters can be quite compelling. But also when there's a big battle going on, you don't want them sitting around just smiling, throwing out words of light and love. You want them in the battle overcoming the forces of bad. That usually makes things way more exciting. They win the battle and of course everything goes back to peace. So those are very popular kinds of stories today. It turns out those stories are modeled on the story of the plan of salvation, which includes God being the divine warrior who wins. Which if you now take that to a personal level, picture that day when you will have the opportunity to come into his presence, knowing that he has in his, in his characteristics and attributes and perfected traits, he has this perfect balance of both mercy and love and grace with justice and judgment and at times wrath. And when you're standing there, it's this, it's this intensifier of his grace to know that he has the capacity to just smite us down, to, to condemn us forever. And quite frankly, that's what I deserve. I, it, my, my favorite definition of mercy and grace, we've talked about this uh, many, many months ago, I, I heard from Brother Bob Millett these two definitions, and I love them. Mercy is to not get what I deserve, and grace is to get what I don't deserve. Now think about you standing in the presence of the Savior and in the presence of God with the Lord Jesus Christ. They have the capacity to give us what we actually deserve, which is infinite death and hell, infinite punishment. That's what I deserve. But if we're willing to trust him, to turn to him, in faith repent of our sins, enter into a covenant relationship with him through baptism, receive that gift of the Holy Ghost, and then walk with him that long journey of the covenant path, then he's willing to own our sins, our imperfections, our weakness, and we never ever need to experience the wrath of God. We never need to know what that's like because the Savior has paid that price for us. So, as you, as you jump into these kind of difficult parts of Revelation as we're getting close to the winding up scenes, recognize that God has done everything in his power to get people to use their agency to choose appropriately, and most have not, and so now come the consequences. And it's, it's a, actually a sign of his perfection that he doesn't just turn a blind eye to uh, the iniquity and the wickedness that keeps prevailing and even growing. So, back to those definitions. Mercy is to not receive what I deserve. So, he extends that mercy, and then in exchange for not giving me what I deserve, which is death and hell, then grace is to receive what I don't deserve. In exchange for, for all that I've struggled with, he then says, 
enter into thy rest, and he has prepared mansions and kingdoms and thrones and principalities, as the Doctrine and Covenants teaches, all these things for us to give us these incredible gifts that we don't deserve. Is it any wonder that we sing amazing grace? It's amazing how, how good, how kind he can be to one so unworthy of, of his mercy and his grace. So, that's important to remember as we jump into this kind of difficult winding up scene before the final conclusion to this story. So, in chapter 15, you have the angel, the seven angels, with seven plagues, seven more opportunities for these consequences to be poured out. And by the way, we're seeing what happens globally, but what what happens locally when uh, opposition or when difficulties, uh, whether it be health issues or lost jobs or different struggles that we face, do those humble us? Do they refine our character or do they do they make us anger and embitter us and turn us against God or away from God? Um, that's that's an important thing to remember for for ourselves as we go into these scriptures. So in verse 6, it says, the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen, having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. And so now they go forth. In chapter 16, you get another one of these list of seven events. So, in the first one, you get verse 2, sores poured out. Verse 3, blood in the sea. Verse 4, the rivers turn to blood. Verse 8, the sun scorches people. Verse 10, darkness. Verse 12, the Euphrates River is dried up. And Armageddon, this final battle, is prepared. And then verse 18 is the seventh vial poured out where you get this earthquake such as has never been known. Verse 20, every island fled away and the mountain, mountains were not found, and there fell, fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Again, it's not about the plagues. It's not about the destructions those are an effect. They're not a cause. The cause was the poor decisions of a collective group of people over multiple generations, and God's trying to work with them. God doesn't punish them because it somehow makes him feel better to punish people. God doesn't seem to get joy from other people suffering. He only punishes or allows consequences that are negative to take place as an effort to allow us to change, to refine our characters, to become more humble, more meek, more submissive, more turned upward rather than turned inward. And it's not working. 
at this point, kind of like the end of the Book of Mormon. When I look at these verses, I also see the invitation for us to have hope and optimism that God is in charge, that we shouldn't feel ourselves overwhelmed or full of fear, but to know that God has a plan. He has given us the script of what's going to happen. And we don't have to lose our minds like, oh my gosh, like we know who's going to win. Again, if you are watching a movie, there's always in a good drama or action film, there's always like a lead up to the culminating things, which is a lot of tension. But if somebody told you in advance, like what's going to happen, you would know like, okay, this will be really tense. I'm going to feel a little anxious, but at the end of the day, I know who's going to win. So as you read these, we shouldn't get ourselves lost in all the destruction. But as Tyler's saying, remind ourselves, okay, what am I doing to be aligned with God and to spread forth light and goodness in the world and to diminish the likelihood that those that I love are going to be experiencing these things and to not feel worry about God's work. Eventually, everything will be all wound up and he will close off as a great author and finisher all plot lines and it'll be a beautiful finish. So as we now turn to chapter 17, we want to show you this beautiful contrast uh, because both the good and the evil become intensified when you see them side by side. And the way that John is telling this story of this vision that he's seeing, this revelation that he's having, it's, it's incredible how you have the lamb that's also referred to as the lion or the root, the stem, all these amazing symbols for Christ. And the lamb has a bride. So fascinating that the devil always seems to have a counterfeit. It looks the same on the surface, but it's twisted and it's, it's evil. In this context, there's a beast, and the beast has his consort as well, and it is the whore of all the earth. And you see the wording here in chapter 17, verse 1, there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. This is showing the dominion of this, this symbolic character of filling the role as the consort to the beast, the companion, uh, the, the chief assistant, if you will, of the beast, the companion. Look at the chapter heading for 17. John is shown that Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations, has become established throughout the earth. Well, it's interesting this phrase, the many waters, it actually shows up back in the creation story, where the Spirit of God is hovering or brooding over the waters, and that when the creation happens, it's God demonstrating his dominion and power over creation. And now you have this counterfeit trying to essentially repeat what God did and put itself over creation. And the symbol of being over the many waters is almost as if they're trying to take God's spot who oversees the created order. And again, eventually the divine warrior is going to come in and take out the beast and the whore. 
who are counterfeits. So now let's look at more qualifications of this relationship here. Verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Are you noticing that she's on a scarlet horse? She's dressed in scarlet and purple. She's got gold, silver, gems, precious things that adorn her and that become a part of her kingdoms, if you will, as it's spreading. All these things that she's offering. The grand irony here is later on we're going to get descriptions of heaven. Well, gold is pavement in heaven. That which is so highly valued on the earth is walked on in heaven. It's the least of things in heaven. So you get this contrast of this side, the earthly side, the, the degenerate kingdoms of the world that are following increasingly the enticement of the beast or the devil, and in contrast you get the, the bride that we're going to get later on dressed in white fine linen. And we'll give more descriptions to contrast this in a few chapters. But you see here the culmination in verse 5, upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Do you notice the significance here? Blood was shed, and in this case, consumed by her. It's the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs. It's their life is given. She takes it. So they die for her uh, increase, so to speak, for her dominion to grow. Isn't it fascinating that you're also going to have blood shed over on this side, but it's not yours. It's the blood of the Lamb. It's his blood that is given. It's his life that is laid down freely in order to give us life, in order to give us power, in order to fill us with love and with intelligence and with capacity to move forward. Everything is the total opposite of what's taking place over on this side. And we have agency. We get to choose whether we let these kingdoms consume our life or whether we let the Lord Jesus Christ fill us with his life. Keep our focus on the earthly over on this side and the eternal and the heavenly and all of the incredible riches of eternity on this right side of the board. Now, if you jump down to verse uh, 8, it says something very interesting. 
the beast that thou sawest was and is not. You say, wait, what? He was, but he is not. What's going on? What, what is John seeing here? Read on. He shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition, and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not, and yet is. You'll notice when the scriptures refer to God or members of the Godhead with regards to time, it usually will say which was, which is, and which is to come, or some set of words that will show that God is not bound by time. An enduring nature. Yes. Now, referring to the devil, notice the contrast, the beast that was and is not, and yet is. It's kind of this funny way to describe a person with regards to time. Uh, I love the fact that God is not bound by time, but Satan seems to be. This is in this is in stark contrast to the great I am, the, the self-existent one who he is through all time, whereas Satan was but is not, and yet he is. Um, just kind of a fascinating little, little contrast that you get there in verse 8 to the real thing that we're seeking to become more like God. And then you get his, uh, John receives the interpretation of what some of these symbols surrounding this beast and the whore of all the earth, what they represent. And also keep in mind, John isn't the only one to tell the story of this whore of all the, the this harlot. If you read carefully Nephi's vision in 1 Nephi chapters 11 through 14, read his vision and compare it to, to John's panoptic vision that we've been reading, and you're going to see a lot of Venn diagram crossover between the two when he refers to the harlot and her dominion over the face of the earth. But let's look at John's interpretation that he receives here, starting in verse 9 down through 18. Here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. It's kind of fascinating, geographically speaking. So, Rome was built on seven hills, and this is very famous throughout the ancient world. People often refer to Rome as a seven-hilled city. So, this seems to be a very clear reference to Rome itself. And remember, in John's day, Rome was the most powerful empire that he was familiar with, and it was an empire that was creating significant problems for people who were wanting to be aligned to God. And so, the Roman Empire becomes a symbol of so much that could go wrong in humanity to oppress God's people. So, there is a historical connection here to John's environment that would help us better understand what he's talking about, that it's the rulers and the kings who oversaw the Roman Empire that were these symbols of the beast and the whore that were so connected to all this negative evil that's creating problems for God's people. So then he describes the, the beast that was in verse 11 um, and is not, even he is the eighth. Uh, 
it's beautiful symbolically, the number eight. Uh, one of the ways you could look at this in Hebrew is eight represents a new beginning. It's a, a new initiation of, of a, a new cycle because seven is complete. It's whole. It's lacking nothing. It's finished. So, eight would then be that beginning point. And again, you've got good examples of eight and you've got bad examples of eight. The good example being, what a great age that the Lord has designated for baptism to first be available at age eight when you have a new beginning. It's a new life. Well, in this context, in a bad way, the the beast is the eighth of these seven. It's a new beginning of, it's a new evil coming in this final conflict that's about to take place. And then the ten horns are in verse 12, being ten kings. Verse 13, they have, these have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Ten, giving power and strength. Their, their, their life, their agency, their money, their, their desires, they give them to the beast. Isn't that fascinating that the beast, representing the devil here, he consumes, he takes from people, from his followers, whereas the lamb, he gives to his followers. He gives and, and sustains and lifts his disciples. It's the, the contrast couldn't be more, more blaringly uh, obvious. Verse 14, these shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them. <laughs> Don't you love how summarily he, he states that? It's just, oh, by the way, this huge group, they're going to make war against the lamb, and you wouldn't expect a lamb to be this great fighter, this great warrior, but the lamb will overcome them. For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. You're noticing that this contrast here is, is stark, but it's beautiful. That you don't live in a realm of darkness, of greed, of selfishness, of, of self-indulgence of trying to set yourself above other people, self-appointedly. You're called by him. You're chosen by him. You choose to be faithful to him. You keep those covenants to the best of your ability rather than over here, take advantage of everyone at whatever opportunity you can to not be faithful, but to, to receive whatever is in it for you right here, right now. Uh, verse 15 says, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest where, where the horse sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Pretty big dominion. The immediate thought to me is the hen that gathereth her chicks under her wings for protection and uh, nurturing. And here, actually, of the opposite. So we know that's God who does that for us. In fact, we get for, uh, third Nephi that Jesus says, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathered her, her chicks. And yet here, the whore sits on everybody for oppression. So again, you have these opposites. God will encompass us, cover us with his atonement, 
for salvation, whereas the things of the fallen world, the devil himself, seeks to sit on you and crush you. So, enough of Babylon. Let's go to chapter 18. Uh, After these things I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. I like that, that God sends angels down from heaven to lighten this ever-darkening world with his glory. And look at what the message is. Verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, that ye receive not of her plagues. It's that that call to flee from Babylon, to, to turn to God, turn away from these, these uh, entertainments, these pursuits, these kingdoms of the world that are set up and build up to just sap your time, your talent, your money, your energy, your desires, your relationships, and make a wasteland of all of them as you you give your life, so to speak, for the wrong cause compared to Christ who gave his life to us and then says, if you give me your life, I'll give you mine in return. And all of the rich abundance of his grace that comes with that and all of the things that are offered. So, chapter 18, if you read through the whole thing and study it, it's this call to flee from Babylon and come unto Zion or come to Christ to be perfected in him, to give your time, your money, your heart, your desires to him. He's the the core solution to all of these ills. And Revelation chapter 19 then takes that to the next level, this invitation into a covenantal relationship with God. You reject the counterfeit, flee, and instead embrace and we choose as a group to be the bride for the Lamb, and we will see that here in chapter 19. This is this is triumphant. Remember what we said at the beginning of the very first uh, lesson in the book of Revelation, that you could narrow this book down to four words, summarize it in four words, the whole book. God wins, Satan loses, and if you only want two words, then it's God wins. Well, this is the the, the beautiful beginning of the ending of that story. God wins. Verse 1, and after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For those of you who like Handel's Messiah, the Alleluia chorus comes from chapter 19. This is, this is the uh, beautiful culmination and and what you read there in the Greek, Alleluia, it comes from the Hebrew Hallel. Hallel means to praise. So Hallelujah and Yah, J A H, is the root for Jehovah. So when you're saying Alleluia or singing Alleluia, all you're saying is praise Jehovah, or in our context, praise God. So Praise the Lord, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, 
for he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand." So, we've seen the wrath of God poured out upon the whore of the earth who has for generations been seeking to destroy not just the plan of God, but seeking to destroy you and seeking to destroy us collectively. And again they said, Alleluia! Uh, go down to verse uh, 5, and a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God! That's just another way of saying Alleluia! All ye his servants and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of the mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia! For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. So, all creation is expressing this witness and testimony of who the Creator is. Remember the creation story back in Genesis, God himself creates the natural order and puts order where there is chaos, and that brings joy. You cannot have joy where there is chaos. So, God brings joy, and so the created order is saying, Alleluia, thank you for giving us order and purpose in our lives. So then you come to verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Brothers and sisters, this is a, this is a significant little segment that often gets overlooked. His wife hath made herself ready. At the end of the day, we're going to give of ourself and all that we have all those, those skills, abilities, desires, money, time, energy, all, all of it, we're going to give that either here or to the Lord. The difference is if we choose to give it here, it gets consumed and we lose it. If we give it to the Lord, to the Lamb of God, then it gets magnified, multiplied, and returned. It's, it's way better than the feeding of the 5,000. It, it is our consecrated efforts are returned because of his consecrated and infinite and eternal sacrifice for us. And how do, how do we fit into all of this? The, notice the wording, his wife hath made herself ready. Who is his wife? If we're not careful, we will see the church as something other than us, or as an organization among many organizations in the world. There are millions of degenerate kingdoms and organizations that are set up, and there are some really good ones set up in the world, but the ultimate organization that the Lord himself established and set up was his church, the church of Jesus Christ. That is his bride. So, as he's in heaven awaiting the second coming, the world is deepening in darkness and despair and sin on the one side, and it's increasing in beauty, in light, in power on the other. And that is all happening through the means of the church, which is not something out there. If you, if, if you were to ask a primary child, 
hey, where's the church? Most of them, I would suspect, would give you some directions of how to get to a church building because we're kind of wired to see the building as if it's the church or some of the buildings in Salt Lake City as the church. They're brick and mortar. They're not the church. They're a part of the church. They're resources for the church, but the church is all of us. We're part of this bride that is making herself ready. Uh, the older I've gotten, the more I have recognized the incredible blessing it is to have church membership, to be a part of this organization that's not, the, the people aren't perfect. If you're going to church looking for perfection, you are going to be vastly disappointed. But if you're going to church with the perspective of, I'm going to turn heavenward and outward, rather than the world's perspective of turning everything inward, if you go to church saying, what can I do to help prepare this symbolic bride for the great wedding day that is to come, you will never be bored again, ever again in church. You'll never walk away feeling unfulfilled. You'll never walk away offended because you'll recognize you're in this, we're all in this together. We are the church. And instead of looking at prophets and seers and revelators and trying to, to find where they're speaking for the Lord and where they're not, but rather trust that God is going to guide the rolling forth of this unfolding restoration through the appointed means, and we do our best to help prepare the bride, all of a sudden our church membership becomes a part, an integral part of our consecration to the Lamb. Our, our connection and our focus on Jesus Christ can become rooted in all of these things that we do in church so we no longer start checking boxes. I went to church, I've gone to the temple, I've had some ministering visits, I've fulfilled my calling, check, 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 check. Instead, it's I love the Lord and I love my fellow beings, therefore, I'm gonna to go to church. I love the Lord and I love my fellow beings on the other side of the veil, therefore, I'm going to do temple and family history work. I love the Lord and I love my fellow beings who maybe are struggling to make sense of what this life is all about, so therefore, I'm gonna do everything I can to love, share, and invite the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ with them and invite them into this organization that I love. Uh, like I said, the older I've gotten, the more I have recognized the incredible blessing and grace-filled gift that the church of Jesus Christ is, what it teaches, what we can do with our offerings to lift the poor and the needy, to teach and expound and to gather Israel and to lift people all over the world. It's, it's a remarkable sign of God's power and how he's doing his work in these latter days. Amen. Amen. So look at the description now in verse eight and to her, the church, and keep in mind, we're not talking about something, we're talking about us. To us was granted that we should be arrayed or clothed in fine linen, 
clean and white. And what is that symbol of fine linen? The fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. I love that, that instead of getting experiences and gain from the world, I give to God and I give to my fellow beings. I, I do everything I can to live righteously. And what does God do? He clothes us. He encircles us in the robe of his righteousness. That's where we are infused with his grace, his mercy, and his love. And we don't need to experience the wrath that we talked about at the beginning. Now we get to experience that grace side and receive things that, quite frankly, we don't deserve because none of us is perfect. So we just keep moving forward, trusting in the Lamb and doing everything we can to help prepare his bride, us, for his coming. And then he saith unto me in verse 9, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. If you have accepted Jesus in your life, you have been welcomed into the marriage supper. If you've accepted baptism, if you have chosen to desire to repent, to have faith in Jesus Christ, these are all invitations to the marriage supper. Then in verse 10, you get this funny little uh, experience where he, John falls down to worship this, this man, who this angel, who has come to be kind of his companion through this vision, similar to the spirit and later the angel being Nephi's companion in, in 1 Nephi chapters 11 through 14. And we'll, we'll pick that up in chapter 22 because a similar experience happens there. Jump down to verse 11, and I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he, righteousness he doth judge and make war. <laughs> Again, Jesus Christ sitting on this white horse, he, he can be an absolute warrior. He is an absolute warrior when he needs to be. And verse 12, his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Hmm. Where else have we heard that? Remember John chapter 1, verse 1. This is John writing this here. That's one of his signatures for Jesus, the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And here he reprises that, that title. So, the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and we already talked about what that represents, the righteousness of the saints. So, in contrast to this royal army from heaven, look at verse 19, and I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. So, 
Did you notice that there are miracles on the devil's side, in the devil's kingdom? He's going to show wonders. The beast is going to empower these kings to be able to do amazing miracles, wonderful things. Well, you have miracles over here. But what was the intent of these miracles? The underlying intent was to get people's attention and to get them to give their agency and their power and their money and their resources and their efforts to the kingdoms of the world. Whereas, what are the purposes of the miracles of Christ? It was never, never to, to have people then follow Jesus in a, in a starstruck kind of a, a way. The miracle, in fact, how many times did we see Jesus perform miracles and then say, see that thou tell no man. He didn't want people to be uh, attracted to his teachings and his kingdoms because of these miracles. He did miracles to lift, to build, to decrease suffering, to empower people with more agency and more freedom to do and to choose and to live according to the dictates of their own conscience and hopefully choose him in the process but it was, he was giving them something. Here, the miracles are to take something. The contrast is just stark. But on the surface, the actual miracles might look very similar to, to a, from a fly-on-the-wall perspective looking in. This group here wants to brand you with their names, their image, their likeness, everything to keep you in this group. And God is trying to convert you, to clothe you with his clothing, with his words, with his names. And we see this in the world today. What do we choose to be a part of with our choices on a daily basis? So now chapter 20, the marriage lamp or the marriage feast between the lamb and his bride is set up. We've Christ has come to the earth. The second coming has occurred. Now we enter the millennial reign. Look at verse 1, and I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. So Satan gets bound for this, this 10 times 10 times 10, this, this superlative of a totality time frame for the events that need to take place during the millennium, Satan is bound. And they cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till a thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season, which now sets the stage for the winding up final scene at the end of the millennium in verse eight, when Satan, or sorry, in verse seven, when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea." So this winding up scene, isn't that interesting? It's going to end very similarly to how it began with a war, and it's not God who's declaring the war. It's always Satan who's bringing the war. It's always Satan who's contending and accusing and fighting. So, 
just like the war in heaven, now at the end of time, he brings all of his hosts. Verse 9, they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. You've seen this a couple of times where, and Taylor mentioned it earlier as well, there's that point in, in, a, in an exciting epic story where it looks like we're going to lose. It looks like evil is going to prevail and good is going to be destroyed. And you're surrounded on every side and, and you're not sure how this is possibly going to turn out okay. Well, that's exactly what's happening here. It says the saints are compassed round about even the beloved city. And then look how quickly John finishes this off in the second half of verse 9. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. It's there, There's not a lot of fanfare. There's not a lot of personal struggle and sword fighting going on here. It's, nope, God recognizes the, the prayers of the righteous saints who are compassed round about by this evil, and he sends down fire from heaven. God is often represented as fire. If you look in the Old Testament, God is represented as fire when he takes the Israelites out of Egypt. He guides the Israelites through the wilderness. When Lehi has his first vision in 1 Nephi chapter 1, he sees a pillar of fire. So we talk about the great and dreadful day. So the fire shows up and it's dreadful for those who are on the wrong side. It is great for those who are on the right side because God has showed up. The Spirit of God like a fire is burning. So, as the concluding battle for this earth's existence uh, finalizes, what's next? Verse 12, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. So, here we are at the final great and last judgment day. It's the day of reckoning, and it says, the books are opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. So, you get the great resurrection followed instantly by the judgment, and they're judged according to their works. Can I just say that the Lord Jesus Christ was already judged according to your works, not according to his? Because if he were judged according to his, there would have been zero punishment, zero suffering. But the Savior was already judged according to my works and according to your works, and he was found guilty and he was punished to answer the ends of the law and to answer the ends of all of that justice that had to be served and the wrath of, of an almighty God being poured out on the, the world here, well, the Savior has already been through all of that in infinite proportions for us. So, you don't need to go to that judgment bar with fear and trembling and anxiety. If, you're, if you love the Lord, if you recognize your true identity and your eternal destiny, and you put your faith in him, and you repent, 
and you make that covenant connection with him, and you move forward on that covenant path with the help of the Holy Ghost, you don't need to look forward to this day as a terrible day. This is a great day. This is a day when his mercy and his grace are extended to you. What a glorious day that will be for those who recognized that they were called of God, were chosen of God, and who chose then to be faithful to him. Which now brings us to chapter 21. What comes after the resurrection and the judgment? And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. This would be kind of like the number eight. We've finished one complete, perfect, whole set of seven, all the way through the millennium and that day of rest, that Sabbath in the earth's existence. It's finished. The old world that we live in right now, it will have completed its cycle, and now you get a new beginning, a new earth with a new heaven, because the first heaven and earth are passed away. John saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Do you notice the significance here? He sees this holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down to the earth from heaven. He doesn't see us leaving earth going to heaven. He sees heaven coming to us. The groom comes to the bride. Christ comes to us. He comes to the earth. He makes us heavenly. He makes us celestial. And we know from Restoration Scripture in the Doctrine and Covenants and other teachings of our living prophets that this earth will become celestialized. I wonder, I wonder, Taylor, if there are things that we could do today to make our little part of this earth more heavenly that we don't need to wait for this prophecy to be ultimately fulfilled, but we can start preparing the bride, so to speak, to invite heaven to bring things into our life, into our family, into our homes, whatever that might look like, into our relationships, whatever, whatever those might look like, that we can start infusing this earth with more and more of the heavenly. So let's look at what are the consequences or the outcomes of this marriage between heaven and earth. We'll look at verse three and four, and you'll notice particularly in verse four, a phrase that we've seen earlier in uh, Revelation. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. How often did we talk, particularly in the Old Testament times, the whole point of the story is God wants to be in covenantal relationship with us. And then it goes on, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the, the former things are passed away. So this is the conclusion. All the plot lines have been resolved. And the author and finisher has finished the story. And what is the conclusion of the story? God himself shall be with him, with them, and be their God, and we will be his people. Of all the things we've talked about in scriptures, everything in gospel, everything in your life, 
the whole end scene is about being together with God. And then he goes on to say, and he that sat upon the throne said, behold, I make all things new. Those of you who feel like you've lost out on blessings or privileges or opportunities in this life, or maybe you had certain relationships or certain opportunities that have now been lost, I love that line that he says, I will make all things new. That's 100%. And then he commands John, write, for these words are true and faithful. Don't you love it when God, either himself or through his servants, bears testimony? There's something powerful about God or heavenly beings or uh, loved ones on the earth today and prophets, seers, and revelators bearing that simple, pure testimony. This is true. You can count on it. There's, there's a power when somebody makes those, those bold statements of testimony, when they witness of the truth, that opens the opportunity for the Holy Ghost to take that message and sink it a lot deeper than just the eardrums and sink it into the heart. These words that we've been talking about today, they're true. Verse 7, sorry, verse 6, he saith unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Did you notice some hauntingly beautiful symbols in verse 6 to the Savior's experience on the cross? It is done. Another way you could word that is, it is finished. Once he had finished suffering the full extent of the, the law for us and all of the things that were necessary for him to endure, he then said that it is finished. Now, here at the end of all things, he says, it is done. And ironically, it says, I will give unto him that is a thirst. One of the final things he said on the cross was, I thirst. And instead of giving us vinegar mingled with gall, as was given to him in that terrible uh, ordeal, instead, what does he offer? He gives us the fountain of the water of life freely. This goes right back to the Garden of Eden. At the center of the garden was the tree of life representing Jesus and God, the, all their love, and out from that tree flowed the waters of life. Adam and Eve got kicked out. And this whole suffering ordeal of being in this fallen world is how do we find ourselves through the power of God back in his presence, back in the garden, at the tree of life, at the fountain of living water. And again, here we are at the conclusion of Revelation, laying out this grand vision, kind of giving the highlights of God's plan of salvation. This is how it all ends. We are back in the Garden of Eden, symbolically, or for real, we are now in the presence of God. He is the waters of life. And he says, he that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And if we use Doctrine and Covenants section 25, verse 1, you'd say, and my daughter, depending on, on your situation. In contrast to that, verse 8 says, but the fearful and unbelieving, which is the opposite of faithful and believing, and the abominable, 
and the murderers and the whoremongers and the sorcerers and the idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So what is the reward over here? What they wanted. They're getting exactly what they signed up for. Uh, now, in the rest of chapter 21, he's, he's giving you some descriptions of the earth in its celestial state. In the city of Zion. In the city of Zion. And its, its gates, its walls. And, and it's beautiful. Uh, as you study that, you can picture not just some future city, but you could ask yourself the question, how can I start approximating the attributes of that city again in my own domain that I have access to right here, right now on the earth? Which now brings us to chapter 22, the last chapter. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Remember what Taylor had talked about in Eden? The tree of life and the water flowing out from it? That was just a placeholder for the real thing in heaven. And in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And oh, how we need healing for all of our nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Did you catch that? His servants shall serve him, and we're in a celestial state here. Just because you are exalted or just because you're living in heaven doesn't all of a sudden mean, oh, finally, I've arrived because heaven's about the location. No, heaven is about relationships and connections and about faithfulness and about covenantal connections, which means we're going to serve him for all of eternity, but not serve him in a, in a begrudging sort of a way. We are going to serve him with all of our heart, might, mind, and strength. We're going to love him. We're going to find great joy in doing anything that God asks us to do. And once again, I'm sounding like a broken record. Why, why should we wait for heaven to start keeping the commandments in great joy and to, to trusting Christ with a fullness of our faith? Why not do more and more and more of that every day right now? when we have all of these other enticing tugs and pulls of the world trying to get us to, to do other things and go other directions. Why not start doing more of that uh, joy-filled obedience today? This reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from President Ezra Taft Benson when he said, when obedience ceases to be an irritant and becomes our quest, in that moment, God will endow us with power. Uh, it, it would be worth each of us contemplating, what commandments am I having the hardest time keeping? And, and maybe I'm keeping them begrudgingly. Maybe I could ask God to help me recognize what part of his attributes, what part of his characteristics, are revealed through that commandment that I'm struggling to adopt into my own life because ultimately I want to be more like him. And God doesn't give us commandments just to keep us busy. He gives us commandments to reveal his character, to help us to become more refined 
to become more like him and less like the devil, to be more turned upward and outward. So, it would be worth our time to consider which commandments we might be struggling with and plead for for God's grace to be able to keep that particular commandment or those particular commandments not as, as they are an irritant to us, but as a quest of our life. And then you get this additional testimony in verse 6, he saith unto me, these sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. So there's another testimony. And then he says, behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Notice the, the pronoun here, behold, I come quickly. So here's John. He's had this panoptic vision. He has this, this man who's been his kind of his tutor, his guide, and this man's talking to him in first person, behold, I come quickly, at which point John, verse 8, I, John, saw these things, heard them, and when I heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. This is this is one of those incredible places in Scripture where we come, uh, where we're introduced to this concept of divine investiture of authority. It's where God authorizes somebody to go and speak as if they were him, to, to speak on his behalf in first person. And so, the, the angel is doing just that. Now, some of you are probably thinking to yourself, so what difference does that make? There are many times when God grants us this divine investiture of authority, not to the same degree or level as the angel here with John. I get that. But every time a worthy priesthood holder places hands on the head of somebody, they do that to stand there and speak and pronounce a blessing in such a way that it's not just a prayer or a petition. President Nelson has talked about this, the ability to stand and speak the words of God. There is a divine investiture of authority there. Every missionary who puts on a name tag, a name tag and goes out to, to spread the work of salvation and to help gather Israel in, whether it's in a proselyting mission, a service mission, uh, 18, 19, 20-year-olds person doing it, or an, a retired couple serving, or mission leaders doing it. If you look at the tag, it has their name followed by the Church of Jesus Christ. They take his name literally upon them to go out and speak in his name. There is a divine investiture of authority given to those missionaries. Every key holder, every a person who gets a calling in the church and is set apart, they get a degree of divine investiture of authority to start creating more of an outpost of heaven in that calling that they have jurisdiction over. It's it's a beautiful concept that I I think, I could be wrong, but I think I often live far beneath my privileges when it comes to really tapping in to God's power 
in these different uh, areas of my life where maybe he's invested more authority in me than I'm actually using. So, if you jump into verse 10, he says, And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. This is a fascinating little description here because you notice that in the Book of Mormon, there were many prophecies, many visions, and the prophets were commanded to write them, like the brother of Jared and Moroni and others, and they were commanded to seal up those writings because the time wasn't at hand. Nephi was told, don't write these things because John is, my, my servant John has been appointed to do that. So, here's John being told by the Lord, don't seal up the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Leave them open because the time is at hand. And he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. Are you noticing the power of agency coming into play yet again? That God isn't forcing anybody to love him or to serve him. And he says, verse 12, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I think that's a pretty appropriate verse to have in the very last chapter of the New Testament, the very last chapter of the entire Bible. I am the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And then he continues in verse 14, blessed are they that do his commandments. This is not a new revelation. We've been hearing this throughout the scriptures. That they may have right to the tree of life and may enter into the gates into the city. So again, Adam and Eve originally had right to the tree of life. They got kicked out through disobedience. We all inherit that disobedience. We are now invited back in to our original inheritance, which was to be in the presence of God, to be at the tree of life and where the waters of life free, flow freely. And isn't it uh, an amazing thing how he, he opened that verse by saying, blessed are they that do his commandments. He didn't just say, blessed are they who know his commandments. Knowledge is really important. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. It, you've got to learn the commandments, but then we have to do his commandments. And then it brings us down to verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is athirst, Come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. You can hear that word, that invitation to come unto Christ. What is the whole name of the church's curriculum? Come. Follow me. It's the, the, the draw of the world is doing everything it can to get you to not follow Christ, to get you to turn to yourself and turn downward. And the Lord's constant invitation is to come and walk with him. And every lesson we've covered in any Come Follow Me curriculum, at the core, once again, you will find the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of the outstretched arms, inviting you to come. Now, some of you are probably sitting there thinking, oh, if only you knew the things that I've done. If only you knew the mistakes I've made, the sins I've committed, the relationships I've destroyed, then you probably wouldn't be as uh, firm in making this invitation. And I would just say, there is nothing that you have done that is bigger or more far-reaching or more powerful 
than the Lamb of God, than the Lord Jesus Christ. His mercy, his grace is infinite, which is infinitely bigger than my badness or your struggles. The key is to turn to him and to turn to God and say, I want thee to be my God. I want to be thy son or thy daughter. I want to be on thy errand. I don't want to be on my own. Help me remember what did I promise to do when I left the royal courts on high to come down to this earth? I know I I volunteered to fulfill certain missions, but I'm having a hard time remembering what those are. I want to be faithful. Please, please bless me with everything that I need, the gifts, the inspiration, the ability, the motivation to be able to move forward from where I am right now to move forward in faith on that covenant path, connecting with Christ. And his mercy and his grace, they are sure. They are in place. It's fascinating that we use this phrase covenant, covenant path again, because here this last chapter in the New Testament focuses on covenants and covenantal fidelity. So we've said one of the major themes of God's entire plan and purpose, what the scriptures seek to express to us is that he wants to be our God. He wants us to be his people in covenant relation. He gives commands, which are covenantal instructions. He mentions that um, up here a few verses earlier. Do the commandments, meaning be covenantally loyal and faithful. God has set out the terms of the agreement for how to be covenantally faithful. Should any one of us change the terms of the covenantal agreement? Should we add to the terms of the agreement or take away from the terms of the covenantal agreement? No, that is God's duty to deliver and maintain the covenantal instructions. It is not our job to add or to take away from the covenantal instructions, which gets us to verses 18 and 19, which unfortunately have been really misunderstood among many people over many generations. They have read these two verses to say, well, okay, the book of Revelation, King James adds at the very end, the end, there's no more revelation. Verses 18 and 19 say, you can't add any more revelation. That actually is uh, incorrect. This is actually covenantal language. And John is saying, I have now laid out covenantal instructions. Don't change. You humans should not be changing God's covenantal instructions. Can God make updates to his covenantal instructions? Yes. And we should expect that God will add to what he has shared or perhaps modify, change, or delete something that he has said because circumstances have changed. The whole scriptures are full of God. Look how big this book is. God adding instructions about how to know and experience his love and goodness. We should expect more from God. And as Taylor said, unfortunately, this verse has been used thousands of times against our church and against the Book of Mormon. Listen to verse 18, for I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the, peop- of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add, add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. People have used this verse to say, see, you're adding to the words of this book, so you're going to get the plagues of, of the book of Revelation because, because of the Book of Mormon or the Doctrine and Covenants or additional scripture. Or general conference. Or general conference. The irony is anyone who makes that claim has not really looked at what this verse is saying. They're assuming in making that statement that when he says, 
that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, they're assuming that they're talking about, that John's talking about the Bible, as if, as Taylor said, all of these previous 65 books were written, and John has the whole collection, and he's writing the last part on the last leaf of the entire Bible. Do you realize that the Bible as we know it was not even put together until the fourth century? The book didn't exist. The only book John has at this point that he's referring to is his book that he's been commanded to write all along the way. And he's saying, don't add to or take away from the book of Revelation. That's the only one that he's got. And you'll also notice that the, the qualifier there is, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues. And as Taylor mentioned, man is not supposed to change and alter these things, but God can. Now you'll notice, if you look at verse 19, he goes on to say, if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. This is, I think, very significant because here we are on the, the last come follow me of the New Testament year, which means that next week you begin your study of the Book of Mormon. I think it's significant that you look at how the Lord speaks about the Book of Mormon when he's dictating these words to Nephi to write them down. Notice, these are the words of the Savior. Because my words shall hiss forth, many of the Gentiles shall say, a Bible? A Bible. We have already got a Bible and there cannot be any more Bible. Do you realize that the word Bible in English comes from the, this root, bibliotech, which is the diminutive form of a library? It's literally a little library. The Bible is a little library of 66 books. Now think about what we're saying if we say to God, a Bible, a Bible, a little library, a little library. We've already got a little library. There can't be any more little libraries. What are we actually saying? We're saying to God, shh, stop talking. It's a library. We don't want any more words from you. We don't want any more direction because you've already given all the direction you're allowed to give. Yeah, we limit God. Brothers and sisters, our God is a God of expansiveness. He is not a provincial little be little God up in heaven saying, nope, I've already given you everything I need. You're on your own now. Figure it out. He gives us prophets, seers, revelators. He gives us continuing revelation. He gives us personal revelation. He gives us his grace. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us hope. He gives us power. He gives us his love. And look how he ends this, this book. He which testifieth these things saith, surely I come quickly, amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Now you can interpret that two ways, many ways, but two of the ways would be his second coming to the earth, the grand, glorious, final events. Or you could say, I don't want to wait for the second coming to invite the Lord Jesus Christ to become a more integral, personal, powerful part of my life. And it's not something that I want next week or next year or when I'm, when I'm in my 80s. It's something I want today, not just today, right now.
Lord Jesus, come, is, is a beautiful plea and a petition and a humble recognition of, I can't do this alone. I can't take one step forward on the covenant path, or I can't establish or strengthen one meaningful relationship on my own. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. I'm not capable. Lord Jesus, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. What a phenomenal way to conclude. It's about grace, the grace of Jesus Christ. And we know the, the source of that grace. So, as we come to the ending of this New Testament year of study where we, where we were able to see the birth, the life, the miracles, the teachings, the infinite atonement, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then him guiding that early Christian church from heaven through the lives and ministries of his apostles, all the way down through this incredible panoptic vision of John at the end, all things bring us back to Christ. And what a glorious privilege it, it has been for all of us to spend this time with him. We hope that you have felt God's love. We hope that you feel greater light, that you feel his spirit, and you feel the joy that comes from understanding his words that have been preserved for you in your day, your time. We love you, and more importantly, we know that God loves you. So, I want to finish in the simplest way I know. We've, we've spent a lot of time in our life Taylor and I studying and researching and digging and cross-verifying and, and learning things up here. But at the end of the day, I want to finish with things I know in my heart. I want you to know that I know that God lives. He's in his heavens. He's a loving God. He's a kind gracious, merciful God, and because of his love for us, he sent his only begotten Son to save us. I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart. I want to give my whole life to him. I want to be a sharper instrument in his hands. I want to do everything in my power, not just for me to walk the covenant path, but to invite and encourage and to motivate as many people as absolutely possible to also take another step forward on that covenant path, because I know where that path leads. That path is a symbolic representation of Jesus Christ. That rod that we're holding onto is a symbolic representation of the Savior, and the tree of life is ultimately a symbolic representation of Jesus Christ himself. He is in and through and of all of these scriptures and symbols, and I want him to be in and through and of every aspect of my life today as well. I know he lives, and I love him with all my heart, and we leave this with you in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved. And spread light and goodness. Mm -hmm.